grateful that you're here. We have started this now four-part series on being delivered from the fear of death. What does the Bible teach about it? So this is your, your handout that will help you follow along. The, the verse that we're using is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. Why don't you stand? We'll read it together. Just stand. Give, a, give your uh, seats a rest, a break, whatever. And uh, find that verse there on the handout, and we'll all read this in unison together. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. Together, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. Thank you. You may be seated. Most of us appreciate the importance of preparation. Athletes prepare for their contests. Musicians prepare for their performances. Travelers prepare for the journey. Students, you prepare for your exams. Why is that? Preparation produces confidence. When I do wedding rehearsals, I gather everybody together and I say, here's why we're rehearsing. Because having rehearsed today, when you show up tomorrow knowing exactly what you're going to do during the ceremony, you'll have confidence. And then you can enjoy the ceremony. God wants you living life every day, enjoying Him with confidence that when that time Ecclesiastes referred to, that time to die comes, you can face that without fear. The Bible tells you everything you need to know about preparing to die. And who wouldn't rather live without fear, but rather in confidence, so that this nagging fear and Rock read it earlier from the passage. It's point number three in your outline. The Bible acknowledges that many of us have a kind of slavery to the fear of death. We all know that's the inevitable, and yet we sort of push it out of our consciousness. God wants you living daily, enjoying Him, life, with confidence in that inevitable day. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches so that truth Information informs our confidence. And if you look one more time at the very beginning of the handout, I'm acknowledging that the more you think about the inevitability of your own departure from this life, there's an ambivalence. That's the, the technical English word that captures this tension we feel inside. Ambivalence. Here's the summary of it. On the one hand, from the perspective of what God made you, and your life to be, death is a terribly unnatural intrusion that we hate. If you say, I hate death in any form, that's understandable. That's natural. And yet, from the perspective of what awaits believers in Jesus Christ for all eternity after they die, death is a necessity that we need not fear. That's the ambivalence. If we can improve upon that, let me know, and I can change this for future sermons. We're at point 26, 
Speaking of preparation, point 26, we should prepare vigilantly to die or for the Lord to return. Jesus talking about his second coming in Luke 12, 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. That idea, stay dressed, is, is pulling up the loins of your clothing. It reminds us of the Exodus, that Israel was told to get ready to flee. That's how Jesus wants his followers to live, ready to flee <laughs> to him when he comes or to him the moment we die. Be like men waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So here's the nature of blessing, the blessed life. Your life is blessed to the extent that you are waiting for, hastening as it were, Second Peter 3 says, hastening the coming of Jesus. So you've got to ask yourself, what is putting me to sleep spiritually? What compromises being awake, wanting Jesus to return? I, I talk to many of you throughout the week. And invariably from time to time the discussion comes to how painful, how awful, how Jamie prayed about it, how, da how dark our culture is. And oftentimes you will say, oh, if Jesus would just come. That's the right desire. But look, what, what, what compromises your sense of wanting to be with Jesus? What's putting you to sleep? Do you know what the Bible says typically puts us to sleep spiritually? Comfort and affluence. They tend to dull our sharp spiritual senses. They tend to put us to sleep. So the more you have, the more comfort you have, as a rule, the less interested you are in being in the presence of Jesus. So be warned. Be warned. If God has blessed you with abundance health, wealth, the vitality of the things of this life. Praise Him, but keep your eyes focused on the giver, not first and foremost the gifts. Jesus goes on, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have them recline a table, and He will come and serve them. You see this reversal. <laughs> The master's been at a wedding feast where you know what Jesus is doing. He is preparing that feast for you. Revelation says the end of history, the end of earth history begins with a wedding feast. And Jesus stunningly says he will take pleasure serving you at that feast. Does that humble you? Does that thrill you? Does that wake you up? Does that make you want to get to know this Jesus? He's going to serve you? Well, if he comes in the second watch, the third, finds them awake, blessed are those servants. That's the blessed life. Hastening, looking for, living in light of my own death of the second coming. Point 27, bold faith empowers us to face death fearlessly. That's where we'd all kind of like to be in theory. And I know that just in a room like this of followers of Jesus, maybe some of you are not, there's a wide spectrum, a wide continuum of where we all are on our fearlessness and faith regarding this. I understand that. Death tends to hold this big thing over us. We're worshiping a God who will swallow up death for all time. Paul returned from his missionary journey. 
he lands back in the, in, the, in the land of Palestine. He's at Caesarea and he's meeting with a group of believers there. And one of them says, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get bound up, put in prison and whatnot. And they're saying, don't go, Paul, don't go. And here's his response, Acts 21, 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Confidence. Ready to die? What do you think produced that kind of conviction? Well, that would be a whole sermon in itself. But at least this much, when he gave his life to Christ, he gave up all rights to his own. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian, you need to know this. When you ask Jesus to save you from your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, you give up all rights to your own life. You're not in control of it anymore. And, and actually, no one's in control of their life. <laughs> no one, believer in Jesus or not, has rights over their own life. God is absolutely sovereign over every human life. The believer in Jesus has a distinct sense of turning over the reins to the lordship of Christ. You can do whatever you want with my life. Now that's freedom living that way. It's hard to live that way. I understand that struggle. All of us have this thing in our hearts where we want autonomy. We want control. We'll give Jesus in control of Sunday, but maybe not Saturday night. Paul gave up all rights to his life to Jesus, and Jesus could do anything he wanted with his life. I'm reminded of the words of the missionary Jim Elliot, who lived this life. Remember the famous quote from Jim Elliot? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right. You can't keep your life anyway. <laughs> Give it up <laughs> to gain what you cannot lose in Jesus Christ. Here's a 20th century example of this. There's a book in our library right up there called A Distant Grief. It was written by a pastor in Uganda named Kefa Simpangi. And he, re he records the details of the atrocities of Idi Amin's reign in Uganda. Just awful. And he recounts the story one night of, of the ongoing persecution. And he writes, Our meeting closed at 3 a.m., but many of the elders stayed for conversation as we talked together. Our thoughts turned to the resurrection. It was no longer a distant idea, but a concrete reality, something so close that it gave power to our lives. Do you want to live right there? It is because of the resurrection that we are free, Kaiwanuka said, speaking with noble dignity. We are not slaves to this life or to our fear of death. We are slaves to Jesus Christ, and he has risen from the grave. Confidence, preparedness. One of the elders who had been in the Makinji prison nodded his head, his face covered with bruises, and his nose was broken. We are persecuted for the hope that is in us, he said. Our hope is the resurrection. We have nothing to worry about. Christ will fulfill his claims. Confidence. Preparation. Several others spoke, and then Dr. K spoke with a low, earnest voice. I have handled many dead bodies, and more come every day. 
I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I tell you, a man who says that, you have to listen to twice. Number 28. Christians must be prepared to die for their faith, as these Ugandan believers were. Jesus warned his disciples, John 16, 2, they will put you out of the synagogues, indeed an hour is coming, Whenever who kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known me or the Father. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I've told them to you. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, yes, the prospect of dying is terrifying. There will be grace needed at that moment. There's grace given to all of Jesus' beloved for everything they need at the moment they need it. The grace will be there when that time comes. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so they persecuted Jesus. And we'll see in 1 Peter, when we get there this semester, we'll be working through 1 Peter, that there's a pattern for all who love and follow Jesus, that as he suffered, we who follow in his steps suffer in kind. 29, death is gain for believers in Jesus. Let's get a little more positive this morning. Death is gain. Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. And that raises what question in your mind? How is it gain? What's better? Got to be better. So your employer comes to you and says, I'll give you one of two options. Would you like an all-expenses-paid vacation in the paradise of your choice for one week or for 12 weeks? Which would you like? What are you going to choose? All expenses paid. No, the time off is free. What do you want? One week or 12? 12 weeks. To live is Christ. One week would be wonderful. To gain is an eternity in paradise with Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this momentary light affliction is preparing Our suffering is preparing us. Our trials are preparing us. Our angst is preparing us. Our difficulties are preparing us. Persecution is preparing us. They are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What's great? What's gain about dying? You're done with sin if you've struggled with sin any length of time, you can't wait to be through with it because it pains you what sin does to you, your loved ones, and to Jesus. You're finished with pain. You're finished with sorrow. You're finished with suffering. You're finished with pain. You're finished with disappointing the Lord. It's grieved you your whole Christian life, disappointing the Lord, right letting down others. It disappoints you. You're done with that. 
You're in the presence of Jesus. What could be better? Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Yes, that is a reference to what happens when Jesus comes again. But in His presence... The moment we die, there'll be no mourning, no tears, no sorrow, no struggling with sin. We will behold him face to face. What could be better? Or as David says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forever. The best is yet to come. So, I'm taking this sort. I think I confessed to you last week. I'm one of those people, unlike my wife, you know, I told you last week, Dana says, just send me to Jesus. Full confidence, full preparation, just, I'm not there. I'm weaker. So I'm taking this verse, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to impress the weight of this into my heart. So I believe in the resurrection. I I believe in the second coming. I believe being with Jesus after death. But there's a sense in which their ideas, their notions that are truths that I don't feel the weight of like I want to in my heart. Anybody identify? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah. And so Jesus, take this word in your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forever, and make my heart Believe that and want that more than all the good things you're giving me in this life. The best is yet to come. Do we believe that? The best is yet to come. 30, death commences our final rest from our labors. Revelation 14, 13, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. One life in which to serve Jesus. Just one. Can I speak to you kids who are younger? Younger kids, do I have your attention? When you get older, you tend to get more serious about what really matters and about serving Jesus and you, you have a greater sense that there's just one life, this life you have to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus in what you do, thought, word and deed, ministry and calling. There's just this one life. You can start at an early age thinking about that, praying that, being serious about that. Young people typically aren't. They're caught up in the moment. You don't have to wait. I was a career counselor at the University of Virginia years ago, and I had students come in, and I had two kinds of students. Christian students see me as for their career counseling. One was the kind that said, I want to work for such and such and such and such a city, now help me get there and find it, and the Lord sort of blessed that. And I had other students that come in and said, I know I want to serve Jesus. Let's find out what that looks like. One is, they had their plans, Now, the Lord baptized that. The other was, what does the Lord want me to do? How can I serve him? Start asking that question when you're younger. One life, and then our deeds follow us. Notice this phrase in here. I heard a voice from heaven, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. 
That tells you there's only two ways to die. In the Lord, not in the Lord. What does it mean to die in the Lord? It means that you die one with Christ, in union with Christ, benefiting from everything that Christ is. Jesus offers himself to frail, broken sinners. He offers himself to rebels. He gives himself to people who otherwise have no interest in God, could never obey God on their own, who could never earn their way to heaven. Jesus offers himself to you and he says, trust me, believe in me, rest in me, take me. And what is therefore true of me will forever be true of you the moment you believe in me. If you die in the Lord, you die as righteous as Jesus is, as spotless as Jesus is, as loved and accepted by his father as Jesus is. Everything that is Jesus's is yours the moment you trust in him. That's the basis of our confidence. That's preparing to die. Dying in Christ. Are you in Christ? Have you believed in him? Have you given him rights over your life? Have you bowed the knee and said, save me, take me, wash me. I want to benefit from all your benefits and live with that confidence. You must be in Christ. Die in the Lord. The alternative, if we get there today, is unspeakably horrible. The writer of Hebrews 4.9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For who have, has, whoever has entered God's rest had also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall uh, by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they did not have their hearts United to the word of God, the word of promise by faith. They had no living relationship with the word of God. They had no faith. Earlier in this passage, in chapter 3, Paul talks about encouraging one another for this striving. Don't strive by yourself. Encourage one another. Your elders want you encouraging one another, benefiting, praying with one another, bearing one another's burdens in your home groups. You're not in a home group. You need to be in one or some source of mutual encouragement. This is a hard life to live in. We're here for each other. We got each other's back. Praying for each other, striving together. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a field in, in athletes, uh, excuse me, uh, a phrase among athletes that say, I'm going to leave nothing on the field. Here's what it means. I go out into the context, field hockey, baseball, volleyball, whatever. When the contest is over, I will spend all that I have, all that I am, on the contest. I'm leaving nothing on the field. I'm giving my all to it. That's, a, that's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, we're, the way we're supposed to live. Not frantically, <laughs> But when that moment comes and we will stand before the Lord and we'll give an account of our lives. Now this is point 23. I won't backtrack to it. But I just want to return to it and make this observation because we didn't talk much about it at that point. You and I will face a judgment for what we did in our lives. There's a day of accounting, whether good or bad. Now that, that moment of judgment, the final judgment when we all stand before Christ will on the one hand be a glorious vindication of all those who die in the Lord. You will be vindicated. Sons and daughters of the living God, trophies of his grace, unspeakably beautiful. There you are by virtue of your faith in Jesus. You'll be vindicated as belonging to Christ. On the other hand, we'll give an account for our lives. 
And in this passage, a, a very uh, competent British evangelical commentator, Philip Hughes, says in this commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says, the judgment pronounced is not a declaration of doom, but an assessment of worth. Assignment of rewards to those who, because of their faithfulness, deserve them. And a loss or withholding of rewards in the case of those who do not. So what you've done to serve the Lord in your life will be rewarded. What you haven't represents the loss of a reward. We should think about that. Now, I know serious believers. The reason you do things ultimately is you want to please the Lord. You want to bring Him glory. You want to bring delight to His heart. You're not doing it for the reward. But boy, He notices. He takes it into account. It's an ultimate day of justice for the Lord's people. And number 31. Death brings us face to face with Jesus immediately. The stoning of the first martyr Stephen in the book of Acts. They were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He, he expects at the moment they've killed him, and they did, he would be with the Lord. There's a really startling detail in this text, and that is when Stephen looks up to heaven as he's being martyred, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing. And we know when he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. Here is Jesus apparently taking a peculiar interest in the stoning of one of his own. Standing. That's how much he loves us. How interested he is in the details of our lives. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I've been fully known. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Why? Because we want to be in the presence of pure, unbridled love. This is the man, this is the God who loved me to death, to his own death. I want to be in the presence of that love. I want to show him my love in person. In the presence of Jesus is nothing less than the, uh, the unspeakable, there's no words for it, in the presence of unbridled beauty, glory, wisdom, happiness, love. Now, don't our hearts need to get that truth pounded in lest they be hijacked by inferior loves? Mind us. I'm too weak in this life. I need greater visions. Part of that happens in our worship. Part of it happens at the Lord's table. Part of it happens in our fellowship. Part of it happens when you witness for him. There's a grace given. When you tell others about Jesus, there's a grace that comes into your heart that confirms the truth of what you're saying. Have you experienced that? I think we need to add witnessing to the means of grace. It's, it's, it's amazing. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we, we shall see him. 
as he is. Revelation 22, 4, they shall see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So what does that mean to you? Just be honest. Well, if, if, that, if I'm indifferent at best, hostile to that thought at worst, I've got major problems in my heart. So Jesus, show me your face now. Show me yourself in your word. Send me people that will encourage me, that will pray for me, that will weep with me, that will laugh with me, that will help me in this. Let's not do this as individuals. Let's do this together. 32, don't be misled by the appearance, apparent ease with which unbelievers live and die. One of Old Testament saints, Asaph, wrote a psalm about this. We used it last week in worship. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. He's basically saying, don't be fooled by appearances. People live as if there's no God and they look perfectly happy and perfectly affluent. Maybe so. Don't be fooled by that. That's just an appearance. Don't envy that. Grieve that they don't know Jesus. 33, death will be horrifying for all unbelievers. This is a hard saying. I just want to acknowledge that. You may consider yourself not a Bible believer and you may find a God who judges people like this abhorrent to you. Let's talk about that. Please don't leave today if you, oh, I don't, that, that, those people are nuts for believing that. Let's, let's discuss it. Why God tells us he's this way. Let's, let's talk about it. Again, the same psalm. Truly you set them in a slippery place as you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly uh, away by terrors. And I want you to know that would, of course, be all of us except for God's grace except for God intervening, uh, we would all be on this slippery track to our own destruction. We would all be there if God hadn't said, I'm going to rescue you from that. I'm going to make you alive when you were dead. I'm going to give you sight when you were blind. I'm going to unstop your ears so you can hear. I'm going to turn you to me. Christians have nothing to boast about but to boast in the Lord. And God will do that for you if you ask him. No one has to die this way. Ask him. He gives himself to any sinner who asks him. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now the word does not mean annihilation. It means ruin. Don't comfort yourself falsely by saying, when I die, I'm extinct. No, we all have eternal souls that will live on forever in the presence of Jesus or not. Has that reality found weight in your soul? Revelation 20:15 If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown to the lake of fire God tells us to warn us he warns us to love us to himself 
Should that frighten us at some level? Yes. If that's what it takes to be shaken from our sloth and our spiritual sleepiness and our indifference to God, if that's what it takes, yes. But God would love you to himself, bring you so you'd know him and experience his love and find yourself loving him. Jesus himself is the one who uses these terms I have for you in the bullets. I don't know if it's in there or not. But Jesus described life apart from him eternally as an unquenchable fire where the devouring worm never dies, outer darkness, wailing and gnashing of teeth, wrath and fury, tribulation and distress, eternal fire and eternal punishment. And let me tell you as I close, he knows that by experience on his cross. Because if that's what your and my sins deserved and he paid the penalty and bore the wrath and judgment for your sins, he has taken that for you in mercy to give you life, to give you his love, to make you stand in his presence blameless with great joy. Confidence, preparation, We'll have to end on that note. Is that a bad note to end on? No, I think we can end there, yes? All right, let's pray. Lord, for my brothers and sisters and friends visiting today, I thank you that this is the word you've ordained for them to hear. Do the work in our hearts that it's intended to do, bringing faith and life, hope and comfort, conviction fear if necessary, but ultimately that we might find ourselves in love with Jesus because of his great love for us. What a Savior. Give us faith to believe these magnificent promises. Take the word of God planted in us, Lord, and by your Spirit, cause us to be those who, because we are confident, we're prepared Because we're prepared, we're living triumphantly, serving you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.